Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. We're in the book of 2 Timothy this morning, chapter number 4. New Testament, the pastoral epistles of Paul writing in this letter to young Timothy. Now, there's some disagreements as to how young Timothy was. We're not here to fix that today. But it does come into play with one of the purposes of the message today. Obviously, Paul had written a letter previously to Timothy. It's a very original, genuine title, 1 Timothy. And then when he sends the second letter, it's 2 Timothy. A lot has transpired, maybe about four years between the first and second letter. Young Timothy is pastoring a church. Most people think he's probably pastored that church for about four years now since the first letter. And Paul, as most Bible students know, and maybe you don't know and that's all right, is in a prison cell, in a dungeon of a prison cell on death row when he writes this letter to young Timothy. I knew it would be difficult for me not to start preaching the sermon during the introduction, even before we read, but the context of this passage is extremely important. In this last letter to Timothy, most likely the last letter Paul ever wrote, he intentionally writes to encourage, to exhort young Timothy. And in this letter, which I want us to read verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 4 this morning, and I think that should be a good hour's worth of sermon, just those three verses. I want us to stand as we honor God's word. Look at these three verses. They're familiar verses to many people. But I believe in this letter, this, these three verses are really the, the heart of the subject of what Paul is attempting to do when he writes to this young pastor. Verse six, Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered. Some versions will say, for I am already being offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And since I've done that, therefore, he says, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, it's good to be reminded that Jesus is the judge. 
He is the righteous judge, and it's he who we answer to. Jesus, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only. Somebody ought to at least kind of mumble amen or yippee under their voice, (laughs) under their breath. Not to me only, Paul says, but to every one of you who love his appearing. Now, there's there's a world of people that are unbelieving that Jesus is going to appear. And I believe there's a world of people who are hoping with fingers and toes crossed that he doesn't appear. But the reality in God's word is the righteous judge is going to appear. And the believer is to be looking and longing and loving his appearing because we know what that means for us. Paul writes this letter in these three verses. He encourages this young Timothy, which I'll take about 20 seconds to tell you five minutes of preaching. Um, Pastoring's difficult. Timothy's a pastor, just so you know. It's not all just Sundays. That's it. It's a good day. One day a week, that's not a bad gig. But here's the reality the Christian life is difficult. And Paul is writing to encourage this young preacher, this young pastor, but he's writing to encourage the church today with his testimony. Father, thank you for your word. I pray we'll be listeners and not leave here today just knowing a little more, but applying the truth of your word to our hearts and leave here today practicing, leave here today doers of your word. And most importantly, in this text, leave here today encouraged to keep on standing, to keep on preaching, to keep on living, to keep on walking by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Sermon title today continues with our now known as faith series, Finishing Faith. Finishing Faith faith. For the last couple months now, it feels like every message has been around the idea of faith. Not sure why, I've already told you that. Wasn't a plan, but I feel led, if that's safe to say, that we should be encouraged in our faith as believers. We walk by faith and not by sight. Bible says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then the obvious question to someone who may be unfamiliar with scripture and faith is, well, what exactly is faith? Is it uh, hoping something happens? No. It's faith is believing the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Because if we walk by sight, we will be a discouraged group of people. Is it possible for a Christian to become discouraged? Absolutely. Look around. Look at what's happening. Not just in the national news, not just in the White House or in the Congress or in the state capitol. Look around at what's happening in families. Look at addictions. Look at death. Look at disease. Life is a few days and full of trouble. 
That's encouraging. It's a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. It's quick. It's short. But yet it's full of difficulties. I'm not going to say even the Christian life. I'm going to say especially the Christian life. One of the biggest misconceptions in the church world today is that believers have it easy. That when you get saved, it's all going to be all right. And there's a group of clowns that are preaching that and letting you pay them to hear it that will make you think that until reality hits and now somebody's wrong. Which if we would just stick with the word of God, we would go into this life knowing it's going to be difficult. Nobody wants to be in a car wreck. Where did that come from? But if somebody gives you a heads up, at least you can prepare for it. Right? You might stay at home. Or you might put your seatbelt on. Nobody has that problem anymore. Haven't, hasn't life changed so much for the better in the seatbelt world? Just kidding. In this letter, Paul is very knowledgeable of the reality that he's about to die. When he says, I'm, a, I'm about to be released, he's not talking about getting out of jail free card or parole. He knows what being released means to him. There's so much even in this introductory thought of the life of Paul and how his faith was manifest. It's not really even in my notes, but it's been in my, my mind since I've been preparing for this. Is, and, and please don't be offended by this because I, I think it applies to all of us, I hope. Paul is in jail, prison, let's call it prison. He's in a dungeon in Rome. I've, I've seen a prison cell similar to this. It's in Caiaphas' house in Israel, but this is not where he's at. They tell us it's very similar, where you've got pretty much a hole in the top, and that's how he would be communicated with or potentially fed. Cut away from all life, dying in jail, waiting to be executed. For what? Murder? Embezzlement? For preaching the gospel. He had done nothing wrong to be imprisoned and headed for death. Now, I'm, I'm painting a picture here and hope we, we get on board. But now he's in prison. Separated from his church leaders, from the churches that he had invested in, can't go visit them. And this letter later, he's begging, he's asking Timothy, please come see me. He's hurt. He's probably emotional, rightfully so. And I wonder, just, just have fun with me, what you or I would do in that position. I know the Bible says you can't know your own heart. But the little I do know, I don't know that I'd be writing greeting cards to my friends. I hope if I ever find myself in a prison dungeon for doing something for Jesus, I will have matured to Paul's level and can say, give me something to write on. I got some letters to send. 
But this is the life of Paul. This is his faith being made evident to where he spends his last days, his last, not even years, writing a letter to encourage, and here's what I want you to get, the next generation. Now this, the purpose of this sermon is to encourage all of us to finish well, to stand strong, to keep on keeping on in our faith life. But as I started preparing, and this doesn't always happen, there was a, a sense of redirection, but more specifically, um, a narrow, narrowing of purpose. Don't know that I've ever done this before. Nobody, nobody get nervous, it's all right. But, but to speak specifically, more specifically, to the older generation. Now, now that I've got your attention, you know if you're old or not. Okay. People get all worried about their age. Oh, he's going to call me out? What's he thinks? Oh. Some of you know that I have often broken down life into four quarters. All right? I think this is a safe, easy way to do it biblically. If you don't know what quarters are, that's 25% of 100. Um, but in the idea of like football and so this is just to help you out, just, just to give context to it. The Bible says in Psalm 90, it's not the message, and there's a purpose behind the verse, that man is given, I'm hearing people say it, 70 years, three score and 10, and if you're, doesn't say lucky, doesn't say fortunate, but if, there's, if strength has its way, you may get to 80. That's what it says, all right? Doesn't mean that everybody's promised 80 years. There's a purpose behind it. Really, the purpose of this verse, I see people looking at each other like, is that really in there? Is it, is it? it is. The purpose of the verse, the context of the verse is to say that time is limited, Time does have a start and an end. Life has a beginning and an ending. And that verse goes on to say, in those 70, maybe 80 years, it's going to be tough. You say, it's in my notes. I just don't have time to turn there because I'm, I'm killing, I'm, I'm getting there fast. So if we've got 80 years and you break it down into quarters, even South Row and Math, you can figure this out. 20, 40, 60, 80. So I'm really going to talk to all quarters so nobody snooze on me and say, well, he's not talking about me today. But I really want to encourage those in the third and fourth quarter to invest in those in the first and second quarter. Paul is probably between 60 and 65 years of age. 
By my math and calculation, that puts him in the fourth quarter. Now, he's in the beginning of the fourth quarter. And then, I know how this, I feel it. I already feel it coming back. We're like, I'm in the fourth quarter. The game's almost over. Some of you are in overtime, I know. I know. It's not to discourage you. Don't give up. That's the other subtitle to this sermon. The question is, are you in sudden death overtime? You know, what, which rules are we playing by? Does this thing keep going? Or is it just first one that scores, it's over? Paul is in the third quarter. Guess what? Dean's in the third quarter. So I'm with you old folks this morning. Now I'm in the early, I'm in the middle of the third quarter. <laughs> Some of you are different places. But we've got this 60 to 65-year-old man who is investing in someone in the second quarter. Please follow along. He knows he's going to die soon. And in his last days of his life on this earth, he finds it a priority to invest in someone behind him. This church leader of all church leaders who has started churches, founded churches, pastored churches, missionary journeys, has this young pastor who is a son in the faith, who's going to be the next generation of church leaders. He says, the, the most important thing I can do is to write these letters to this man to encourage him to keep on doing it. Finishing faith. In this, what J. Vernon McGee calls a, a, a deathbed testimony, Paul gives his testimony of faith to Timothy in the verses that we have. And in verse 6, 7, and 8, Paul writes basically his present testimony of faith his past testimony of faith, and his prospective testimony of faith. It's the easiest of all messages to preach for a preacher. Verse 6, 7, and 8, point 1, 2, and 3, and then we're done. Y'all ready? We're just now starting. Let's look at Paul's present faith. In verse 6, he says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Keep in mind, Timothy's reading this letter. He's getting this letter from his mentor, from someone he looks up to. I'm ready to be offered. Paul knows that death is certain. Not like, well, it could happen in the next 20 years. No, it's coming. I'm just waiting on them to come get me. Not only is he about to die, what's important is that Paul is ready to die. There's a little side note here that must be preached from a Baptist preacher. Are you ready to die? Now, I'm like I've heard before. You know, I'm ready to die, but I'm not at the bus stop waiting on it, right? I can't remember the context, and I'm not going to call him out, but I have a son who's sitting over there paying attention right now so far. This is good. And something we were, I can't remember. I need to call you up here and let you know. <laughs> I can't remember what, what we were talking about. 
but it was something kind of dangerous or something. You'll have to remember this and tell me later. And his response was, well, I'm ready to die. That, that was supposed to be funny. It got real serious real quick. It was said comically, but he was talking about spiritually. Like, I'm ready to die. I'm like, well, yeah, but we don't want it happening right now. So I, Paul was ready to die. He knows he's dying, but he's ready. And the question of all questions is, are you ready to die? It is appointed unto man, once to die. And after this, the judgment. We're gonna die. Life is short. It's a few days full of troubles. No one is promised tomorrow. If you've been in church for more than about two months, you've heard some preacher say that. And we're not. And the question that you have to answer every day, every night, every time you come to church, and hear the gospel and walk out is, am I ready? Am I ready? Paul knows it's happening. And he's ready. He was ready because of his salvation experience and because of his obedience to the call of service. So again, if you've been in church a while, you know about Paul's conversion. Some people aren't very aware of that, but if you're not aware, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 9, we see Paul is converted. He is saved. But we see previously that his name was Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. He, over, he, would, he would oversee the deaths of Christians. He would persecute them, imprison them, and be responsible for their deaths many times. But on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. And there's a whole context of what happens there. But when he meets Jesus, and, and there's so much there, and this is not the, this is not the message. What, what's important is that Jesus called him to salvation, and he says, I've got a plan for you. And I wish I had 20 minutes right now to, to convince and to help many of you understand that you're not too far gone to be used of God. Amen. This guy was the antithesis of a church planner. Amen. He was a church killer. But God saved him and gave him a job to do. Paul didn't consider himself worthy of it. We see that later in his writings. What's interesting is God saw something in Saul that no one saw in him. There's, there's some comedy in there because later he's supposed to go in there like, I'm not talking to that guy. You know, he kills people. He's like, nah, he's a chosen vessel to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. God called him out and gave him a job to do. And what's Probably one of the best verses in Acts 9 during the calling of Paul in verse 20. It says, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. In the same chapter that he saved, converted, and called, he's out preaching the gospel immediately. Can you imagine that tent meeting? I've always thought about how that must look. You know, big billboard. Paul, formerly Saul, the, the artist formerly known as Saul, is preaching 
about Jesus. And I wonder how many people showed up. Now, I, there's no scripture that says there was a tent meeting with Saul. Just, just make it clear. But if anybody knew about Saul, who's showing up to this party? It's a trap. And for the first few probably years of his life, most of it was convincing people that he really was a follower of Jesus and preaching the gospel. That's how bad of a person he was. But he answered the call. And it was because of his obedience to the call that Paul had a distinctive perspective on death. Ready to die. Not just ready to die, he said, I am ready to be or I am already being poured out. I am ready to be offered. And you see the word offer, you hear the word offering. Think of sacrificial offering. And Paul is saying, and he refers to this several times, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering to God. You don't have to know all of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system to understand this, but we do know in the Old Testament that they made animal and even wheat harvest sacrifices. And in multiple locations, in Numbers, in Leviticus, and even in Genesis, you hear about this drink offering. And the drink offering was a, a portion of wine most of the time that was to be um, poured out after each individual sacrifice. And what's important to know about it, the the context of the drink offering was that no offering, no sacrifice was complete until the drink offering had taken place. And Paul saw his life as a drink offering being poured out to God. That his, not just his life, but his final days, his death would be signifying a drink offering being poured out to God. You talk about finishing faith. Church, this is what God expects of us as believers. Our last days, our last years, let's, let's help us all out because I feel like we, our last decades should be done in a way that is offering to God so that we're being poured out. He said, in Philippians 2.17, I am being offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I joy and rejoice with you all. He says, I am ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. This word departure is interesting. It's the idea of pulling up tent stakes. You know what happens when you pull up tent stakes, right? That means you're going home. Some of you, redneck, you're not redneck enough. You don't know a tent. What's a tent? <laughs> There's a message within this idea of departure. Paul knew that he was going to be freed from the craziness of this world. The time of my departure is at hand. And I am ready because of his confidence in his salvation and in his service. This letter was most likely written around 67 A.D. Some say May, some say uh, June. I'm, I'm sorry, that was the winter. And then he was beheaded in May or June, spring of the next year. He knew he was about to depart. And in the last days, he writes to Timothy and he says, 
I am presently faithful. I'm ready to go. And then in verse 7, we don't not only see his present faith, we see his past faithfulness. Here's the familiar verse. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. This is his testimony of faith. As a believer, do we not all want this to be our testimony? I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Three times in verse 7, you see the phrase, I have. This phrase is important because it, it's not just past. It is past, but it's not just past. It's in the Greek, the Greek is very colorful and it gives a lot of um, context in one word. I have means that he has completed past actions that still continue to receive results. There's a lot of past actions in our spiritual life that we've completed, but we're still walking in the results of those actions based on our faith in Christ. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. Paul understood that he was a soldier. I think you've probably heard that from me before. I didn't make it up. It's in scripture. The songwriters didn't make it up. It's in scripture. They stole it from God. I preached that recently and offended some people but it shouldn't have been because we're all in this together. And I said the word sissy, and I think some sissies got offended. No, we're a soldier. We're in a war. We're in a battle. He said, I have fought a good fight. I want to fight. Well, it will become evident that you don't want to fight if you don't want to fight. But Paul said, I fought a good fight. He understood that in this Christian life, we're in a battle. We are a soldier. In the first, the second chapter of this same letter, Paul says to Timothy in verse one, therefore, my son, be strong in grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast learned of me among many witnesses. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. What a phrase. Endure hardness? Why? Because it's hard. Because life's difficult. Endure it. How? As a good soldier. A good soldier understands that the battle is hard. It's difficult. He says, endure it as a good soldier. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Is it up on the screen? Yeah, my screen's blank. That's fine, don't mess with it. But I want us to see that I'm not making this up. This verse says that God called us to be soldiers. Him who has chosen him to be a soldier. God's the one who chooses his soldiers. 
It's not like the preacher's up there trying to get me to go to war. No, God called you to go to war. This was going to be a short sermon, but I can tell on the responses. I need to dig in a little. The feeling and the vibe we get when I say what I just said, and I'm not, please, please love me and take this carefully, is what's wrong with the Christian culture in America today. There's too many of us who don't even even understand or want to believe or care that God called us to be soldiers. Because we're in a fight. Because we're in a battle. Not against flesh and blood, but but against spiritual wickedness in high places, which many times take on the form of flesh and blood. They do their dirty work. And we're called to be soldiers. This whole idea of fighting is, a, is um, imagery of a struggle. The word fought, I fought, means to agonize. Well, I, I hope you get this. Fought, I have fought. It means to agonize. It means it's not easy. It means you gotta fight. And even fighting's not easy. It's difficult. Got people, uh, I'm, I'm doing good, everything's good. I ain't got no problems. Because you're not a fighter. Because you're not a soldier. But it's easier to not fight. I see where it's headed, so I'll stop. <laughs> well, if we just leave them alone, we won't have to fight. We just sit here and wait on Jesus to take us to heaven and live in pure hell here on earth with the leaders of the other side making the rules and regulations that are anti-Christ that we have to live with and raise our children in. So yeah, sit back and say, I don't want to fight. And you'll get a couple more spoonfuls of what we've got in the last 20 years in this country. Got to stop there. This fight, this word fought to agonize is a cost. It comes from our word, means a cost, and it costs something. Paul is not saying that, hey, pat me on the back, I've done a good job fighting. It's not what he's saying. He's saying I fought a good fight. Here's the simple part to get to the next point because you're tired of this one, is the fight is worth it. The fight is worth it, is what he's saying. He says it's hard, but it's worth it. Therefore, endure hardness. He says, I fought a good fight. And then he says, I finished my course. Paul understood that as a believer, not only was he a soldier, that he was also an athlete. I finished my course. This word course is like a track. Read behind one scholar and they said, you know, it's real simple. I've touched all the bases. I finished my course. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, don't have to read it, but Paul talks about this idea of how he trained, how he understood that life was a race. And everyone's running this race to receive the prize. And 
Because of that, he prepares himself, he disciplines himself to be successful in the race. Paul used this terminology often as like a runner in the, what we would consider Olympic games. It would be their Isthmian games. What I want us to see is that Paul says he finished his course, but it's important for us as believers to understand that all of us have a course. God has a plan for all of us. He has a track, a course for all of us to run and compete in. Jeremiah said, God told Jeremiah, I have, I know the plans I have for your life. If you've ever read Psalm 139, you can't read Psalm 139 and not know that not only does God know you, he has a plan for your life. And every one of us have as a believer, we have a course to run. We have a plan from God for us to compete in, to do well in. And Paul says, I have finished my course. Paul talks about runners on a track. I'm not a runner, don't want to be a runner. Don't understand why people want to run unless they're in trouble. But I do like NASCAR. Can't read this without thinking about the illustration of, and I know I just excluded about 82% of you, but the rest of us rednecks like it, so deal with it. They're long races. They're hard races. It's hot. You think about a NASCAR race and you don't usually just win with the car you brought. You got to make some adjustments along the way. There's some pit stops. There's a lot of people involved to finish the race. A lot of people never finish the race. God wants us to finish our course. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says that he has a, a purpose, a a vision for what God wants him to do to be a witness in every city. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course. Here's a good question. Do you know, do you know personally God's plan, God's course for your life? I used to preach this little sermonette that, yeah, we, you know, I remember growing up and I remember going to college and it was all about God's will for your life, God's will for your life. You know what God's will for your life was? I got so tired of hearing that. I was like, oh, God's will for your life, let's make it simple, is salvation and service. And I think that's, that's good. Amen, preacher, that was a good one. And so here's the question. Are you saved and are you serving? If Paul, under the inspiration of God, talks about the church as a body and says that we're all body parts and all fitly joined together, we make a good, healthy body to do the work of Christ, the question is obviously, what body part am I? What am I doing to complete the body of Christ? You called to salvation? Yep, got that one, know when I've been saved, I'm confirmed, I know it, I got it, uh, I've been baptized, and I have assurance of my salvation. Uh, okay, what are you doing? Because he called everyone to do something. Paul had assurance. I know my course. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, God says to Ananias, he said, I've called him to be a, 
uh, a light. I've called him to be a, a preacher of the gospel to a select group of people. Paul is now on his deathbed. He says, I've finished my course. I have done what God called me to do. I can't think. That's going to sound a little morbid and maybe a little emotional to some. But I can't think of anything much worse than hearing someone on their deathbed or in their dying days saying, I wish I would have, fill in the blank. All through this life, we hear people say, if I could go back, I'd do this, 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 and this. Now, sometimes it's if I could go back, I'd spend money differently. I'd go on this trip. I'd buy that car. I'd do. But how sad, spiritually, men and women, believers, get older and closer to meeting Jesus than ever before and have what could have been, what should have been, if I would have. And Paul says, I finished my course. I've, this is part of why he's so confident and ready to die. I've done what God called me to do. Faithfully. So I'm ready. No regrets. Spiritual, uh, uh, sports analogy. Leave it all on the field. I've done it. It's important to finish well in our faith life. I know if you've ever heard this phrase before, it's not how you start, but how you finish. You ever heard that? Well, I think it does matter how you start, but what's important is how you finish. Now, some, some of us need to hear what I'm about to say today because some people will not finish well because they're so caught up in how they started. Or they fumbled in the second quarter. Or they just, it's British Open time, right? They just blocked the shot and hit it out of bounds on hole number three. You gotta leave those things behind you and press toward the mark of the high calling. Now as a believer, when you slice it out of bounds, you confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you. You repent of your sins and you move on to the next hole. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. And how many people have we known, how many loved ones have we known that on their deathbed or in their last days, they were, they were people that we looked up to spiritually, but if we would have known them when they were 30, we would have thought, how in the world? And what an encouragement that is. When we do know how they were, but now we see them ready to meet Jesus. I used to coach basketball. Some of you know that. It's a lot of fun stories came out of that. And when I think about not how you start, but how you finish, uh, kids always, I, I coach middle school, which is always a fun uh, age, and um, everybody's about being on the starting five. Who's the starting five? Who's the starting five? Who's the starting five? And if you've got 562 kids, I mean, you've got to cut them down. But who's the starting five? And here's, here's what you learned. I, I had heard this, but then you learned this. It's, it's not really, what's most important is not the starting five, but the finishing five. 
Because not the same five that start always finish, even in a basketball game. I started thinking about that and thought about how life works and how Paul is talking about this course, this finishing the course and, and, and that whole idea of even in the sports world and how it makes so many applications to us that not everybody that started the game finishes the game. Now, lest you get theologically confused, I didn't say they're no longer on the team. I said they didn't finish the game. Got a lot of thoughts about this. But sometimes there's reasons why the same five don't finish the game that started. Sometimes they foul out. Sometimes they quit. Sometimes they get so tired they can't finish and give 100% because they didn't prepare, they didn't train. Sometimes their body language makes a coach say, I'm not putting you in. By the way, any kids that are playing sports or anything and you want to, body language matters. You know, Billy's out there stinking it up. I got to replace Billy. Who am I going to replace Billy with? And you look over and uh, Bob's over there like, Bob ain't going in. Right? I got to replace Billy, look over and, and um, Steve's over there like, He's not going in. It's the guy who's ready to go in. It's the person who wants to finish well that the coach is going to use. There are some people in churches today, in this church and in every church this Sunday, who need to get over how they started make adjustments in their spiritual life. Come clean with God, allow him to use them so they can be called on to finish the game. Paul said, I finished my course and I kept the faith. Paul understood that he was an athlete, he understood he was a a warrior, he was a soldier, but he also understood that he was a guardian of the faith. He says, I have kept The faith. This word kept here is interesting. It means to guard. In the first chapter of this same letter, Paul says, hold fast, verse 13, the form of sound words or teachings that I have, you've heard from me, and faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which is committed unto keep or guard by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This idea of this word faith here is not I've kept the faith as in I've, I've kept my faith going. It's not I have maintained my salvation. That's not what he's saying. The word faith here represents the, the truth and standards of God's word. It represents the whole counsel of God. And Paul says I have kept the faith. It's completely not his spiritual condition. This is not what he's saying. We're not kept by our own strength in our salvation. We're kept by Christ and Christ alone and his righteousness. But Paul is saying, I have kept the faith. He's saying, I kept the main thing, the main thing, and I have guarded it and given it to you. So you now guard, keep the faith. Have y'all forgot how this thing started? I know it's winding down. 
Those of you in the third and fourth quarter, let me say, those of us in the third and fourth quarter, God is saying, keep the faith. Guard the faith. I feel like we've almost separated ourselves into the third and fourth quarter over here and the first and second over there. There's a mix, but for the most part, that's how it works. The burden is on our shoulders to maintain, to guard this word of truth for that generation. One of the most, it's a, it's a wowing verse and it's a sad verse. And I stumbled over it years ago and I refer to it semi-often. It's found in the book of Numbers. I'm sorry, ju <clears throat> Judges chapter two. And in Judges chapter two, verse 10, Scripture says that there arose a generation which were gathered unto their fathers, and then there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And I'm, I've never forgotten that verse. It, it pops in my mind regularly. And when Paul says, Timothy, I have kept the faith. I have guarded the word of God, the doctrines and truths of God's word, the whole counsel of God, I immediately go to the book of Judges and think, some of us old folks, if we don't guard this, there may arise a generation that knows not God, nor the works of God. Now, if I'm honest, and if we're all honest and transparent, and we back up to about 20,000 feet and look at this country, that may be what we're seeing. is a generation that was raised not knowing God, nor the works of God. And here's the worst part, it's not their fault. Not their fault. It's the generation before them who neglected the word of God. Didn't guard it. Paul says, for the sake of the generations that come, we must guard the faith. Here, here's the question, well how do we do it? Uh, and, and I'm not gonna take this too much out of context actually at all, but in verse two, of this chapter. Here's the best way to guard the faith. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. You might not be an ordained pastor or a licensed minister, but every one of us called of God to salvation, called of God to service, is a preacher of the gospel. Dads, you're the first and the most important preacher, pastor of your house. Paul said, I am presently faithful, ready to die. I am, I've been faithful in the past. 
And because of that, because of that, verse 8, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Not only to me, but to all of us who love his appearing. On his deathbed, Paul is a man of faith. Making it a priority to invest in the next generation of church leaders. Now I could close my Bible and close my notes and sit and we could talk for the next 45 minutes to an hour if you wanted to. I think if you've known me more than a couple minutes, you've probably figured out that's part of my passion, part of my vision is to invest in the next generation. Here at this church, in my life, in what I do outside of this church, because it matters. I've been in this church long enough to where I can call names, handfuls of names, maybe a couple truckloads of names of men and women who I look at as men and women of faith, hall of faith, modern hall of faith people, who I look to them and think, man, they're a man of faith. Not they were a man of faith, but they still are. I'm gonna speak on behalf of the younger generation, even though I'm not part of them anymore. And here's what they're saying. Whether you hear them or not, or whether they admit it or not, the younger, first and second quarter generation of Christian leaders in the church, they're saying, please keep on keeping on. They're saying, please invest in us. They're saying, please engage with us. They're saying, please encourage us. And Paul, in his last days, months before he's beheaded, is writing to Timothy, doing his dead level best to encourage him. Stand firm in the faith. Guard the word of God. Guard the doctrines of God's word. Guard the church, God's bride. If we're going to see any success in the church in the future, outside of God's eschatology, it's going to be because some moms and dads, some grandmas and grandpas continued to invest. I know it practically. Well, I taught Sunday school for 50 years. I'm done. I got you. I understand. That's a long time. You know it all. Just quit. No, no. I'm t- <laughs> I understand people have taught for 100 years and it's time to give it up for different re- I understand that. But there's still a job for you to do in staying faithful to the Word of God, to the house of God, to the things of God, so that those that are coming up say, I want to be like that when I grow up. And they may not say it, but they're saying it. And they may not admit they need it, but they need it. 
and it's on our shoulders. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, for encouraging us through the words of Paul. And I pray that those of us who are more mature in our Christian walk, more mature in our years, we would see it necessary to invest in those behind us, our children, our grandchildren, other people's children, other people's grandchildren, to stay strong, stay faithful to your word, to keep on doing what you've called us to do. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.